Hi, everyone. This Coram episode this month will count for CME credit with ACP. Yay. We will link the exact URL in the show notes. So click on the link, answer three questions, and get CME credit. And with that, cue the intro. This is Dr. Marty Freed, a primary care physician at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. And this is Dr. Shreya Trivedi, an internist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And Dr. Michael Dunleavy, a clinician educator fellow at Ohio State. This is the Core IM Five Pearls podcast, bringing you high yield, evidence based pearls. Today, we're kicking off a two part series on advanced heart failure. All right, our first episode is going to address pearls around heart failure on the general medicine floors. And our next episode, we'll tackle more ICU level care with discussion on advanced therapies. We are super excited to introduce a new friend of the pod, Dr. Michael Patrick Dunleavy. Great to be here. Right on. All right, let's get started with the pearls we'll be covering in this episode. Test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl 1, initial clinical assessment. What are some key clinical variables to evaluate when you first meet a patient with acute decompensated heart failure? Pearl 2, initial lab workup. What are some of the most important lab findings to pay attention to in a patient with decompensated heart failure? Pearl 3, home medications. Which home medications can be continued during a heart failure admission and in what circumstances? Pearl 4, loop diuretics. What are some dosing strategies and monitoring tips to help us guide initial volume removal? And Pearl 5, diuresis 2.0, advanced topics in volume removal. What role do thiazides and ultrafiltration play in diuresis? And why does diuretic-induced metabolic alkalosis happen? And what should you do about it? Okay, before we deep dive, let's just take a moment to make sure we're on the same page when we talk about heart failure. Heart failure is a clinical syndrome, meaning it's a constellation of signs and symptoms that lead to a diagnosis. And decompensated heart failure refers to someone who has the clinical syndrome of heart failure with elevated intracardiac filling pressures. That's Dr. Greg Katz, our Core IM in-house cardiology consult and cardiologist and cardiovascular intensivist at Vassar Brothers Hospital in Poughkeepsie, New York. So I think about uh, heart failure exacerbation as being the result of elevated intracardiac filling pressures and that leading to a cascade of a neurohormonal response that causes vasoconstriction and fluid retention and all of the subsequent symptoms that people who have those things will develop. All right, that's a perfect place to start the initial clinical assessment of a patient who we suspect is having a heart failure exacerbation. All right, so Mike Dunleavy, you get a call from the ED, and your next admission is a middle-aged gentleman, history of coronary artery disease, status post some stents, his ejection fractions in the 20s. He's reporting some worsening lower extremity swelling, shortness of breath after binging on some Netflix and my favorite ramen noodles for about two weeks. What's the first thing you're looking for? When I'm getting an admission and I'm suspecting it's a heart failure exacerbation, my spidey senses are way up when I'm looking at the vitals. After all, vitals are vital. So the blood pressure is going to be a sign of a patient's perfusion status. 
and I think will help determine what your next steps of therapy are. I mean, a hypotensive patient who's maybe poorly perfused and could need an inotrope, also hypertensive patients, and is it more blood pressure control that they need vasodilation, some afterload reductions? That's Dr. Aisha Hassan from Ohio State. Dr. Hassan is the medical director of the Heart Failure Program and Section Chief for Heart Failure and Transplant. Her point here is easily overlooked, but obviously crucial to triage. What is their pressure, and what does that tell me about perfusion status? And when I'm listening for the blood pressure, I'm also tuning in to what's the pulse pressure, which is the difference between the systolic and diastolic blood pressure. Narrow pulse pressure can be a sign that somebody is in a low output state. And if you're not taking that seriously, occasionally you will miss a vulnerable patient because their blood pressure is 130 over 110 when they're normally 180 over 140. And you will take someone who is relatively hypotensive, but has a pulse pressure of 20 and just create damage. Eek. Listening to those numbers, your spidey senses must be tingling. All right, Peter Parker, walk us through the pulse pressure. So pulse pressure is usually determined in large part by aortic elasticity. But if someone with a reduced ejection fraction comes in with a low pulse pressure, it's more likely a sign that their sick heart has a poor systolic function and can't generate enough force to even get a normal pulse pressure, rather than it being related to their aortic elasticity. All right, and the other variable not to lose track of is heart rate. Remember that old equation, cardiac output equals stroke volume times heart rate? Sometimes resting sinus tachycardia might mean that that heart is on struggle street and making up for the low cardiac output by working overtime. But to me, the rookie mistake is interpreting the heart rate without looking to see, hey, is that patient on an AV nodal blocker or not? I think we've all been fooled by a normal heart rate, but they have metoprolol on board. One strategy I've seen is people including this in their documentation or handoff. So they might say something like heart rate in the 90s on home metoprolol succinate 100 milligrams. Yes, I appreciate those qualifiers to take objective data into context. Winning there. All right, so that's the vitals. Moving on to the rest of the physical exam. I mean, with heart failure, there's just, there's lots of signs to look for. If we had to focus on one aspect of the physical exam in heart failure, what would that be? You are committing malpractice if you are not looking at someone's neck veins when they're admitted with heart failure. Okay, note to self. I might be thinking twice about asking Greg for expert witness testimony in the future. So the reason I focus so much of my physical exam on jugular venous distension is because that is your window into what the intracardiac filling pressures are. The absence of pulmonary edema or lower extremity swelling or all of these sort of traditional physical exam findings doesn't tell me that a patient doesn't have heart failure. You can have heart failure without swelling and swelling without heart failure. And your jugular venous pressure is your bedside swan that tells you what your right atrial pressure is. Okay, sold. JVP is our window to see how backed up things are in the heart. If you look at the medical literature, you'll see that JVD is often not considered to be a super important sign of heart failure. I'm completely persuaded that the reason why the evidence doesn't back this up is because nobody does JVD well. All you need to do is spend one week rounding with a heart failure attending who is able to figure out a patient who the medical team stopped diuresing but is still 20 pounds up just by looking at their neck veins. You will be persuaded too. 
You can't just do it once or twice and watch a couple of YouTube videos. You need to look at a thousand necks. All right. Well, I don't know about you all, but I'm pretty convinced about JVP now. But that's a pretty tough exam, and I've heard of at least eight different ways to do it. The real question is how can we accurately find the JVP? The simplest, like quick and dirty way to do it is you sit somebody up at 90 degrees and you see, do they have any palpable jugular venous pressure above their, uh, above their clavicle? And if you see anything venous above the clavicle in the absence of severe TR, that's elevated right atrial pressure, assuming that it's not like SVC syndrome or tamponade. And then the second thing that I'll do is I'll put someone at 45 or 60 degrees just sort of like not super flat, but also not completely upright. And I'll look to see, do they have a pulsation at their ear? And you need to look at both sides because sometimes only one side will show it for whatever reason. Okay, yeah, I've definitely been guilty of only looking at my patient's right side. The other thing is I always feel like I'm trying to figure out if the pulsation I'm seeing is venous or arterial. When you're finding someone's jugular venous pressure, put your finger on their wrist, find the pulse, your jugular venous pressure should have two pulsations for every one pulse beat that you feel at someone's wrist. And if the upstroke of what you're feeling on the wrist corresponds to the upstroke of a pulsation in the neck, that's the carotid pulse. And it's not the one that you want to be using. Great. So to recap, my big takeaways from the initial clinical assessment is that blood pressure Specifically, low pulse pressure can clue us in that the heart squeeze isn't that great and the patient might be in a low perfusion state. And I'm all for changing our culture in terms of how we present or document vitals and say heart rate in the 80s on diltiazem 100 milligrams daily. So we don't feel reassured by a normal heart rate for a patient who's on an AV nodal blocker. And I will forever be terrified about not looking at a JVD because that is, as Greg pointed out, the window to the right atrial pressure. All right, guys, can we also just be real and talk about all the times we've been at the bedside with our interns or med students shining that iPhone light on the patient's neck and the JVD exam is just limited by habitus? Sometimes we just need a little bit more objective measures. So let's talk about the labs in heart failure. Yes, that happens all the time. And a lot of attention gets paid to the BNP, or brain natriuretic peptide, and for good reason. BNPs greater than 1,000 supports the diagnosis of congestive heart failure. BNPs less than 100 make CHF way less likely. And BNPs in the hundreds are just not that useful. For example, one paper noted a BNP of 350 has a likelihood ratio of 1, which doesn't change your pretest probability at all. For me, the trend is important as well as the actual numbers. I love when patients coming in with a heart failure exacerbation have had an outpatient BNP when they were feeling well. That way, I can compare what the BNP is when they are sick on admission to the hospital to what it was when they were feeling well outpatient. And the reason why that trend is important, and I'd argue even more important than the actual numbers itself, is that there are factors that lead the BNP to either be higher or lower. For example, patients with chronic kidney disease usually tend to have higher BNPs, so it's even more important to compare that current BNP to where that patient usually lives when they feel well. And there are a few other conditions to be aware of too. And then BMI is important when it comes to assess assessing the BNP because the morbidly obese patients tend to run a lower BNP. So it's just looking more at the trend. 
if patients are on the new drug, Secubitril, um, the neprilysin inhibitor, then the BNP will be elevated. So you have to do a pro-BNP. Yeah, that neprilysin inhibitor BNP bump can be significant, even tripling from the baseline levels. And the reason is neprilysin breaks down BNP, so BNP levels will rise if you are on a neprilysin inhibitor. Instead, you actually want to order a pro-BNP in patients on neprilysin inhibitors since it's not a substrate for neprilysin. So listen, BNP gets a lot of attention, but when I'm talking about the heart failure workup with my interns and residents, I always try to impart a healthy respect for the troponin in decompensated heart failure, especially if their pulse pressures are low and you're concerned about shock. You don't want to miss an opportunity to revascularize somebody when you had that opportunity because that's the only intervention that we know seems to make a difference in cardiogenic shock. Exactly. If there's any consideration for acute coronary syndrome being the culprit of that decompensated heart failure, again, especially if their pressures are low, getting them to the cath lab to see if ACS is causing it can be one of the few things we do to actually improve their mortality. Love it. All right, let's move on to the next most important lab. Dunleavy, what else is on your list of never misses? Let's talk about sodium. Fun fact, hyponatremia is actually associated with a worse prognosis. Yes, sodium corresponds really closely with somebody's mortality and their degree of chronicity of illness. When I see somebody come in with decompensated heart failure and a sodium of 129, I think about them in a completely different prognostic place than I do in someone who comes in with a sodium of 138. And there's data to back that up. Admission hyponatremia is a predictor of all-cause mortality. The risk of death was especially worse for sodiums less than 125 in heart failure exacerbations. Even a sodium drop of just 3 MEQs per liter during the admission was associated with increased mortality. Wow. Okay. Respect the sodium. Respect the trope. I mean, I feel like we do a pretty good job of that already, but yeah, for real, respect the sodium. Yeah. Okay. Well, any other labs to respect? There are definitely others, but we might be respecting some labs a bit too much, like the creatinine. Yeah, so Mike, I don't think you're talking here about critically ill patients who arrive in extremis and you're rushing to the CCU. I mean, true kidney injury like ATN or acute tubular necrosis can and does occur in really sick folks, and we definitely care about that. I think we do respect creatinine a little too much when it comes to small bumps that occur during diuresis. Exactly. Yeah, it happens all the time, but we know the answer. Just keep diuresing right through that acute kidney injury. This is not really acute kidney injury. It's hypercreatinemia. Yes, that is Dr. Swapnil Hermoth to the rescue, nephrologist at Ottawa Hospital and from Twitter's NephJC. But wait, what's he saying here? So that hypercreatinemia that Swapnil mentions is referring to the work of Dr. Steve Coca, who wrote a great paper on this idea of permissive AKI in the treatment of heart failure. And again, he's playing with words here. It's a question of semantics. Uh, but the, the, this kind of framing changes it from thinking of it as a kidney injury to just a rise in creatinine. And, and you should be following a principle of permissive hypercreatinemia. So letting the creatinine go up, look at the patient. If they are in volume overload, let them be diuresed. Instead of the creatinine being 1.5, it is 1.8. That's okay. Take a deep breath. Clinically, the patient is getting better. That's what matters. All right. Yes. Take a deep breath. Be brave and channel your inner swapnel. So if you see a creatinine bump, 
reassess what else might be going on. Are they obstructed and need a Foley? Or was it just a small bump in a patient who's otherwise clinically improving but still overloaded and needs more diuresis? The knee-jerk reaction is often to just hold the diuretics. But if it's a small creatinine bump in a patient who's otherwise improving, continuing the course might actually be the best thing for them. Yeah, I think we can all do better and channel our inner swap nil in these situations. All right, to summarize this pearl, number one, when looking at the BNP, it's great if we can compare it to the outpatient setting or the last time they were admitted with a heart failure exacerbation. Again, there are other things like obesity, chronic kidney disease, patients on neprilysin inhibitors that can make BNPs either higher or lower. Number two, hyponatremia. Remember, it's an independent marker for mortality in patients with CHF, especially if it's worsening during the admission. Number three, remember to check a trope if there's any concern for acute coronary syndrome as a cause of decompensated heart failure, especially if they're in that cold category we discussed in Pearl 1, because there are significant benefits to early revascularization. And finally, cardiorenal syndrome is important and complicated, but if your patient's still edematous, the answer to a small creatinine bump is usually continue diuresis. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals right to your door ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. Okay, guys, can I tell you what really grinds my gears? When you call someone back within seconds of missing a phone call and the person doesn't answer? The fact that it costs more to replace an ink cartridge than it does to buy a whole new printer? Chris Harrison's mirth- <laughs> merc- Chris Harrison's merciless pre-commercial teasers during Bachelor season finales. <laughs> you got a lot there, well, Mike. I figured you could just pick your favorite. <laughs> well, obviously, those are bad. But, but we're talking about maybe even worse than that. Oh, the fact that some people still believe flat earth conspiracies. Okay, no, not not that bad. That's bad. That's that's bad. But I really can't stand it when my primary care patients have their guideline-directed medical therapy held during an admission and it never gets restarted. Yeah, I had to do work on changing this habit that I picked up over time. I think most of the time we're like, all right, let's be precautionary and just in case because we don't know what direction this patient's going to go. In most cases, we wouldn't hold the beta blocker. And I think that's the biggest thing we see when patients are admitted at night, holding the beta blocker in every decompensated patient. So we try not to. It, just if they're in shock, if they're tachycardic, 
very low blood pressure, you think in shock, that would be the time that I would hold it. Otherwise, I would continue the beta blocker or give a lower dose. And interestingly, our quote unquote, just in case holding of those home meds and not wanting to do harm can actually do more harm. There's data that shows when we hold beta blockers with patients coming into the hospital, it's hard to get them restarted on it back to their target dose, especially if they came in on 25 milligrams twice a day of carvedilol. And when the patients were seen six months post-hospital discharge, oftentimes they weren't back on their beta blocker. So that's why we need to continue it, unless it's truly a shock situation. Thank you, Dr. Hassan. That is what I'm talking about. Stop stopping my beta blocker. <laughs> Just like big picture, what do I look at? Are they altered or somnolent? What do their extremities feel like? Cool, clammy. Do they have any levito reticularis? What is their pulse pressure? How thready is their radial pulse? And the combination of all of those things is going to give you a sense of should you stop their beta blocker or should you continue their beta blocker? Okay, so that's the beta blocker story. I'm guessing things get a little bit more dicey with what to do about holding or continuing ACE inhibitors for patients who are admitted for heart failure exacerbation. Well, yeah, it's the kidneys. It's obviously going to get more complicated here. Tell me we have a swap null soundbite for the win. I don't blame anyone for stopping the ACE inhibitor. Stopping the ACE inhibitor is the easy way out. No one is going to blame you for doing that. It's the path of the least resistance. So I just met swap null but I feel like this isn't the whole story. So I would encourage people to become courageous and brave and and not stop the ACE inhibitor. Yep, knew it. But what if someone's creatinine is rising? There is little data about what should be done. Uh, The the knee-jerk reflex remains to stop ACE ARB. The best data we have is there was an observational study from uh, Alberta a couple of years ago And they actually showed that patients whose ACRBs were stopped had higher mortality. Now, Swapnil did acknowledge that the paper he's referring to here is not a trial. And despite propensity score matching and other stats wizardry, there is a high probability that sicker patients had ACE-ARBs held, and you can't just eliminate all that confounding. Yeah, I think there's a similar logic with the beta blocker argument, too. All right, so if I may try to summarize this pearl... There's this knee-jerk reaction to stop ACE inhibitors when someone is decompensated in heart failure. And there are certainly situations where that is the correct answer. But it sounds like there's a lot of situations where ACEs and beta blockers can comfortably be left on or even dose-reduced to ensure that we don't lose that mortality benefit of all those meds if they aren't restarted on discharge. What you commonly see is a patient comes in on an ACE or an ARB or an ARNI or an MRA, and then will have their neurohormonal blockade held when they're decompensated and their Lasix dose or their diuretic dose increased, and then they're discharged without the neurohormonal blockade, but with a higher dose of a diuretic. And if you're thinking about the long-term survival of a patient, that's the exact opposite thing that you want to do. All right, so at this point, we've diagnosed our patient with heart failure, we've completed a thorough evaluation of their perfusion and congestion status, we've considered which, if any, of their home medicines we need to hold during the admission. Let's bust out the diuretics and get this man peeing. 
for a while, we were seeing everybody getting 40 milligrams of IV Lasix when they got admitted, regardless of the home dose. But now I think people are better at looking at the home dose of Lasix, torsamide, whatever, and trying to, our rule of thumb is double it. So if it's 40 milligrams of torsamide that they're on at home twice a day, then give them 80 IV twice a day coming in or something like that to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, everyone has their own practice, right? Some cardiologists, they really advocate for that initial diuretic dosing to be one mg per kg in the hospital. But let's back up here and ask ourselves, what is a good dose for a loop diuretic? For a dose of serosamide to result in an effective diuretic episode for a single dose, it's considered effective if you excrete from that single dose about two to three liters of water with that proportional amount of sodium chloride in it. That's Dr. Zavin Sergesian, hospitalist and APD at Baylor. Obviously, every patient has different goals depending on how much you want them to pee for the day and how much they can hemodynamically tolerate. But what peeves me is that we rarely go back after six hours and see, was that an effective dose or not? Did we hit that threshold for that patient to get effective diuresis? Dr. Zargzian broke this down beautifully in a recent tutorial, where he astutely asked, what's the better dose for your patient? 40 milligrams daily or 20 milligrams VID? And it depends on what that person's individual dose threshold and dose ceiling is. Yeah, so basically this idea is that the dose threshold is the diuretic dose where you will start seeing meaningful diuresis, meaning about 2 to 3 liters of urine per dose. And the dose ceiling is the point where you start getting diminishing returns on your diuretics. So further increases in dose beyond that will no longer need to more urine output. If that threshold dose for a given patient is 15 milligrams, then giving them 20 BID will result in two episodes of effective diuresis, each causing the patient to pee two and a half liters, say, for a total daily diuresis of five liters. Whereas if you give that patient a single 40 milligram dose, sure, they might pee a little bit more than to the 20, say they pee three liters, but they only have one of those episodes and their total daily diuresis is three liters. All right, let's put this together with a couple cases. Now, it is going to be a few numbers here, but I think it's going to be worth going through the exercise. So if you can, you might want to pause or slow down the podcast. All right, patient A got Lasix, 40 milligrams IV, twice a day, and his daily urine output is 1.5 liters. Now, considering that output, Dunleavy, how are you adjusting his diuretics? So 40 milligrams clearly isn't reaching this patient's threshold. If total urine output is 1.5 liters after two doses, that means with each 40 milligram IV dose, the patient put out only 750 cc's. That's nowhere near our target of 2 to 3 liters per dose. So we need to up the dose to 80 milligrams. All right, so let's say patient B, who's on 40 milligrams of IV Lasix twice a day, has a urine output of 4 liters over the whole day. He's tolerating it well, but he's still quite a bit overloaded. Now what are you doing? So each dose of 40 milligrams IV is leading patient B to put out almost 2 liters per dose. That means increasing the amount given per dose will likely hit the ceiling for that patient, so it will only have a marginal effect. Instead of going up on the dose, I'd increase the frequency of the medication to TID. And maybe for the sake of the patient, consider giving it at 6 a.m. noon and 6 p.m. so they aren't up all night peeing. That is very thoughtful of you there, Dr. Dunleavy. 
All right. Sometimes you run into those situations where tracking urine output is like inconceivably difficult. So if you're not sure whether somebody responded to a dose of diuretic, either because they can't tell you qualitatively if they peed a lot or because you have poor tracking of eyes and O's, you can send a spot urine sodium. If that is over 100, they probably responded to the dose of diuretic. If it's under 100, they probably didn't. If it's 95, you can like take some poetic license and say it's probably fine. But uh, in general, 100 is a decent cutoff. Yeah, so the point here is that if someone did not have a significant urine output or they have a low urine sodium after their diuretic dose, you probably need to increase the dose of the diuretic. And at what point do you reach for the furosemide infusion, the old LASIK strip? Yeah, we asked all of our experts on this, and it really came back to style. I have a very low threshold to start a LASIK strip. And if they're not responding to a bolus of 80, that's usually when I'll start them on a drip. And it's also okay not to have a strong opinion here. So um, I'm a little bit agnostic about whether you want to use uh, bolus versus infusion. Uh, but if you cannot do an infusion, it's completely fine to use, you know, multiple bolus doses. <laughs> okay, thank you, Swapnil. All right, so to summarize this, Pearl, if we can loop in our patients and our nurses... Da, da, da. <laughs> yes, <laughs> if we can loop in our, our patients about their loops, um, <laughs> <laughs> about getting urine outputs, and if we can get that, that's great. Uh, so you can either adjust the dose if we haven't hit that patient's threshold dose, and if we have hit that threshold, we can think about increasing the frequency of the diuretic to get more volume off. And remember, a good effective output per dose is going to be about two to three liters of urine. And if it's hard to get that accurate urine output, which unfortunately happens more often than we'd like, try a spot urine sodium to see if you're hitting that threshold dose. And then when it comes to intermittent versus continuous dosing of furosemide, it's more of a style question. So with most patients, all you really need is a splash of furosemide, and they are going to be just fine. Hopefully. But sometimes things don't always go so smoothly. What if that furosemide just isn't cutting it? If you're up to 80, 100 milligrams three times a day on Lasix, adding a thiazide is, is very appropriate. And so we usually turn to metolazone just because it's relatively inexpensive. Yeah, the idea here is that thiazide such as chlorothaladone and thiazide-like diuretics such as metolazone work in the distal convoluted tubule, which is downstream of the loop of Henle, where furosemide does its dirty work. And thiazides are especially useful in situations where long-term presence of loop diuretics are causing diuretic resistance. All right, anything specific about the addition of thiazides that we should know about? We would turn to metolazone, 5 milligrams, sometimes 10 milligrams, and use it on a PRN basis. The thing about metolazone is it lasts up to 72 hours, the effect from it. So it's not something that we need to dose daily when we use it to augment diuresis. All right. So the point here is that we shouldn't just be writing metolazone Q day and setting it and forgetting it. The risk of adding thiazides is that you get way more electrolyte disturbances, particularly hypokalemia. Yeah, we see this commonly, so I'm definitely checking lights twice daily if I'm reaching for a thiazide or thiazide-like diuretic. Yeah, and while double diuresing with loops and thiazide, some other electrolytes to keep an eye on is that chloride and that bicarbonate. There's that pesky diuretic-induced metabolic alkalosis that we sometimes mistakenly call contraction alkalosis. 
the assumption or the you know where the crude way of putting it is that everything else contracts but the bicarb remains the same so the bicarb concentration goes up right so that's the you know and it makes intuitively it's nice to think about contraction alkalosis that way right sodium goes down fluid goes down but the potassium goes down but uh, you know the bicarbonate concentration for some reason stays the same but as we know you know that's not the entire story okay a I don't think I ever realized exactly why it was called contraction alkalosis, and B, I feel like I've been lied to my entire life. But as usual, credit to Swapno for completely opening my eyes to something I definitely had not appreciated before. The terminology has evolved from volume contraction alkalosis to chloride depletion, uh, you know, chloride depleted alkalosis, CDA. The reason contraction alkalosis is not right is because if you give these patients albumin, for example, you will correct their volume state, but it doesn't correct the alkalosis. It's only when you give them chloride that the alkalosis seems to get corrected. And without much chloride and being in a metabolic alkalosis state for a bit, it can have some quite significant implications for our patients, particularly if they have obstructive lung disease. And when you're retaining bicarb, that metabolic alkalosis can cause a respiratory compensation. And when you have patients who have COPD and have baseline PCO2s in the 50s or 60s, all of a sudden for them to be retaining more CO2 is a really bad thing. When that bicarb starts to creep up to 36 and then 38 and then 41. And every once in a while, there will be a really catastrophic outcome because somebody has a metabolic alkalosis that's induced by diuretics. And then they have respiratory compensation and their PCO2 shoots up to 90 and then they get CO2 narcosis. And so you need to be cautious about that. Yeah, I actually saw this very recently on the wards. We had a patient whose bicarb was slowly increasing over several days of diuresis. But thanks to our conversation with Greg, we got on top of it. We treated the diuretic-induced metabolic alkalosis by repleting their chloride using potassium chloride. The bicarb improved and fortunately, the patient didn't develop any respiratory issues. Nice. I guess we could just memorize metabolic alkalosis, give KCL. But I kind of want to channel my inner Tony Brew and ask why. The, the, our understanding has really changed. And one of the key channels is this thing called Pendrin. It's a chloride bicarbonate exchanger. So it, it will throw out the bicarb and reabsorb the chloride. Yeah, this chloride bicarb exchanger allows our kidneys to remove excess bicarbonate in the urine by reabsorbing a chloride ion. Basically, if there is a chloride available, Pendrin can pick one up and toss out a bicarb into the urine. Right, but when we're diuresing patients with loops and thiazides, they're losing a lot of their chloride. So Pendrin doesn't have its mojo, doesn't have that chloride around, and can't correct that metabolic alkalosis. And Pendrin's activity also shuts down more with hypokalemia and when there's elevated aldosterone. When you think about problems with patients in heart failure, elevated RAS system, diuretic-induced hypokalemia, and chloride depletion, it's almost like we're doing everything we can to shut down Pendrin. Oh dear. Okay. So is there anything we can do to actually prevent this? In situations where you know you're going to need uh, to use either high doses of furosemide, or you're adding on metalazone uh, or, you know, a, a potent uh, a distal uh, diuretic, I would, I almost always proactively add on spironolactone. Oh, wow. That makes so much sense. Hypokalemia is bad for Pendrin, so preventing that with a potassium-sparing diuretic helps keep Pendrin going. Yeah. 
All right, quick mid-pearl recap. When we add on a thiazide-like diuretic to loops, we can cause a lot of electrolyte issues like hypokalemia, chloride depletion, and resulting metabolic alkalosis. And that metabolic alkalosis is largely due to decreased activity of pendrin, that chloride bicarbonate exchanger that spits out bicarb if it can reabsorb chloride. But in heart failure patients, when we're aggressively diuresing them, when there's not much chloride around, there's not much spitting out of bicarbonate. And pendrin activity is further decreased with hypokalemia and hyperaldosteronism. So one workaround is preemptively giving spironolactone, something that's good for these patients anyway. Well put, Shrey. All right, let's finish out this pearl with a quick discussion of what to do when we have started a loop, we've added a thiazide, and maybe even a potassium-sparing diuretic, the old total nephron blockade, and we still aren't getting the diuresis we want. Uh, if you have given enough of that and you're still not having enough response, then we go to the, you know, removing fluid by, uh, you know, mechanical means by, you know, uh, barbarian manners like dialysis and ultrafiltration. <laughs> yes, ultrafiltration is definitely an option when we're running out of more sophisticated ways to get volume off using medications. But yeah, there are definitely situations where we might reach for ultrafiltration earlier. Sometimes we start with ultrafiltration right away on some of the patients who come in on, say they're on massive doses of torsamide at home, 100 BID, and they're up 30 pounds or so. That might be a patient you go straight to ultrafiltration because you know they're going to be very diuretic resistant. Um, but otherwise, as you're escalating in the hospital, you're on big boluses of a loop or a, a drip and then the thiazide and would try ultrafiltration. And you get a higher sodium removal with ultrafiltration. And also you don't have some of the electrolyte issues because it doesn't pull off potassium and magnesium. So you can usually use it in that situation. We had somebody recently, we put on ultrafiltration because they had terrible gout with their loop diuretics. So we did ultrafiltration and everything, everything went pretty well. Oh, wow. Pretty cool. So ultrafiltration allows us to remove fluid manually without mucking with all those other electrolytes. So to summarize this section on troubleshooting diuresis, once you are on a fairly high dose of loop diuretic and not achieving significant diuresis, consider adding a thiazide diuretic like chlorothaladone or a thiazide-like diuretic such as metolazone. Remember, these can cause substantial electrolyte abnormalities and contribute to chloride depletion metabolic alkalosis, which as we saw can be a major issue when diuresing patients, especially those who have COPD. In those patients, reach for the potassium chloride to replete their chloride and prevent worsening of their chronic respiratory acidosis, or even consider adding spironolactone to prevent the cascade from the start. And finally, ultrafiltration is definitely an option if all else fails, but there are cases where you might want to reach for it sooner, like patients who have demonstrated significant diuretic resistance and you just know you're going to have a tough time managing only with medications. All right, well, that is all for us. We are now going to have Dr. Michelle Kittleson give us an expert recap of our pearls, as well as a few awesome teaching nuggets of her own. Dr. Kittleson is a professor of medicine at UCLA and the director of the Advanced Heart Failure and Transplantation Fellowship at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. She also tweets from at mkittlesonmd, so definitely give her a follow over there. All right, Dr. Kittleson, take it away. Okay, let's start with PEARL 1, the initial clinical assessment. Signs of volume overload are well known. An elevated jugular venous pressure plus an S3 gallop are the most specific signs of congestion. 
Now, crackles or rawls are neither sensitive nor specific for pulmonary edema and chronic heart failure. There may be no rawls due to upregulation of pulmonary lymphatics or lots of rawls due to atelectasis. So the best way to irritate your heart failure attending is to base your assessment of volume status on the lung exam alone. Okay, let's move on to signs of poor perfusion, which are just as important. If there's a low pulse pressure, that's concerning. But tachycardia is important too because it's a symptom, not a disease. Don't move to knee-jerk lower the heart rate in a patient with heart failure. Instead, respect that the high heart rate is an attempt to compensate for low stroke volume in a tenuous patient. Pearl 2. What labs can tell you about the severity trajectory of the patient? If I were stranded on a desert island with a heart failure patient and could only choose three labs, well, maybe that analogy stretches credulity, but let's run with it. I would want sodium, potassium, and creatinine. Sodium and creatinine would tell me how sick the patient is. Low sodium and high creatinine means it will not be a straightforward set it and forget it ride. And a high or low potassium helped me decide on how much of the renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system inhibition and loop diuretic therapy the patient can tolerate. Pearl three, guideline directed medical therapy in a heart failure exacerbation. What about the home meds? Well, if potassium and blood pressure can take it, don't be afraid to continue all the wonderful guideline-directed medical therapy the patient came in on. Remember that the acute hemodynamic benefit of afterload reduction with the angiotensin receptor nephrolytsin inhibitor or the ACE inhibitor or the ARB, as well as the naturetic effect of the angiotensin receptor nephrolytsin inhibitor can only be a good thing. This pronolactone is also essential, not just for long-term remodeling, but potassium-sparing properties. Have you ever swallowed a potassium horse pill? You don't want to. Keep up the potassium in the least offensive way by continuing this pronolactone. Now, finally, as noted, these observational studies did indicate that discontinuation of beta blockers during hospitalization results in reduced beta blocker usage at follow-up which likely contributes to poor or long-term outcomes. So unless you think the patient is sick enough to need a pulmonary artery catheter and inotropic support, that is, they are so advanced that there's little benefit from the guideline-directed medical therapy and imminent discharge is unlikely anyway, there's no reason to stop these wonderful medications. Okay, pearls four and five, volume removal and additional tips and tricks. My favorite topic is IV diuresis, and I have three rules. So the right answer is what works. I love loop diuretic drips because I find, in my experience, I get more bang for my buck. Yes, there was no difference in the dose trial, but they tested global improvement in symptoms at 72 hours. I'm not even sure what that means. So my rule of thumb, if Lasix 80 milligrams twice daily doesn't give me what I want, which is usually a minimum of two liters diuresis in the first 24 hours, a drip it is. As for metolazone, it's a big gun to be used sparingly given the hyponatremia and hypokalemia that inevitably results. If a patient isn't responding to a Lasix drip at 80 mg an hour, I'll reach metolazone, but I'll also start talking advanced heart failure therapies with the patient because needing metolazone to achieve decongestion is a bad sign.
All right, rule two, the longer you stay, the longer you stay. My sense is that for every plus of edema, it's five to 10 pounds. So someone with three plus bilateral lower extremity edema could have 30 pounds to lose, let's say 15 liters. If you make them four liters negative daily, they'll be there four days. If you make them two liters negative daily, they'll be there twice as long, which gives them more time to fall out of bed or get C. diff. So in the warm and wet patient with a stable blood pressure, potassium, and creatinine, don't be afraid of rapid diuresis. Let the patient guide you, not fear of the ins and outs. And finally, it's mean to disrupt sleep. I turn off loop diuretics from 11 p.m. to 5 a.m., and unless a patient is in significant respiratory distress, never spot diuretic doses after 6 p.m. The night float will thank you, and the patient will thank you. It's yet more reason to be more aggressive with morning dosing. Well, that's probably enough for one expert recap. Here's to lots of liquid gold and guideline-directed medical therapy and smooth sailing for your next heart failure admission. And that is a wrap for today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your colleagues, your teams. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. Thank you to Dr. Kathy Sashan from UCSD for the accompanying graphic, to Solon Kelleher for audio editing, especially all the edits the day before the publication, to our peer reviewers, Dr. Stephen Fan and Dr. Eugene Yerditsky, as well as many of the hospitalists and residents for reviewing the episode. And thanks to you. And as always, we love hearing feedback. So email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent opinions of any affiliated institutions. You need to look at the markers of how are they perfusing and what's going on before you can say, yes, I did a great job. You're not like Trump with the COVID response. Like just because you say you're doing a good job doesn't mean you're doing a good job. I don't know if you want to include a line like that in, uh, in anything that you're, you're doing, but I said it and I didn't say it should be off the record, so it's fine. <laughs> Shrey, Shrey is uh, the, the, the diplomatic, the diplomat here, so uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see if that makes it into the final uh, yeah. paper. <laughs>